heart, the, the great hymn, as I was preparing the sermon this week. So what's the only natural thing to do when you see God's majesty and glory everywhere? What should that naturally move us to? Praise. Praise. I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced this, right? You, <clears throat> you see a beautiful sunset. Or you're looking at a, a serene, calm ocean. Or maybe you're looking at a roaring ocean. Or I think about the, the beautiful English countryside of my homeland. And you look at that. And you just feel praise oozing out of you. Thank you, Lord. This is amazing. This world can take your breath away, can't it, with its beauty. And I've always found it baffling that how somebody cannot look at that beauty and still believe, no, nah, that all just happened by chance. To me, and I'm sure to many of you, it just evokes praise and thanksgiving at God's creation. As we look at verse 2, though, it talks about praising. And it shows us that praising God is actually one of the most powerful things we can do to counter the attacks of the enemy. And the things that we will experience in life. The trials and difficulties we will experience in life. Listen to verse 2. It says, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. To silence the foe and the avenger. So praising God actually establishes a stronghold against the enemies of God. Against those who are hostile to God. Against those whose minds are bent on revenge. You see that? Praising God establishes a stronghold. And you know, it's, it's fairly easy to give praise to God when everything in life's going well, isn't it? Right? The money's coming in. You have your health. There's food on the table. Your loved ones are well. I mean, to give thanks and praise to God in those circumstances is, is pretty easy, isn't it? But to do it when all is not well there's the challenge and there's where the power is when we go through trials in life when be it getting diagnosed with a, a, an illness or losing a loved one or losing a job or going through financial difficulties there's nothing more that Satan wants than for us to take the advice of Job's wife and curse God and die That's, nothing would delight him more. It's to give up on God because you're going through hard times. And many people do. But when you do that, you fall right into Satan's playbook when you start blaming God and turning against God for the problems in your life. Instead, giving God praise in those circumstances is one of the most powerful things you can do. It's one of, it's one of the most counter-instinctual, counter-cultural things you can do. Donald M. Williams, a Bible commentator, he says this, quote, When God's people, weak and strong alike, begin to praise his name, the realm of Satan is rolled back. You know, I believe our, our praises, they take on a whole new level of power when it's done in the midst of trials and difficulties in, in our lives. Satan hates to see that. It's like nails on a chalkboard to him. Because not only does this psalm tell us that praise creates a stronghold against the attacks of the enemy, but it also shows that praising God is not contingent on our circumstances. 
You're only going to praise God when things are good. But try it. I encourage you, try it. If you're going through difficulties right now, if you're having a hard time with whatever it is, get some time alone with the Lord. And just come before Him. Just be honest. Be real. Say, God, you know what? I'm having a hard time right now and I don't know why this is happening. And God, I don't feel like praising you right now, but I'm going to praise you anyway. Because you are glorious and majestic throughout the heavens and the earth. Use Psalm 42 verse 5 as an encouragement, which says this. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. You know, it gets better though, because not only does praising God in the midst of the enemy's attacks create a stronghold against those attacks, look at where the praise comes from. Verse 2 says, through the praise of children and infants. Now the kind of children we're talking about here are infants and nursing babies. It's not older kids, it's infants and nursing babies. In other words, the smallest, the weakest and the most vulnerable of all human beings. That's where the praise is coming from. And you know, I I love how the message paraphrases verse 2. It says this, Nursing infants gurgle choruses about you. Toddlers shout the song that drown out enemy talk and silence atheist babble. It's awesome. I love it. But you see, do you see the point here? God loves to use the small and weak things of the world to bring glory to himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 27 says this, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And you know what, you, you might not be feeling uh, particularly strong or confident or hopeful right now, but praising God in the middle of your struggles and trials is one of the most powerful things you can do. It's powerful because it puts a wall of protection up against the enemy. It's powerful because it shows our praising God is not contingent on our circumstances. And it's powerful because it takes the focus off ourselves and puts it on God. When we focus our attention and energy on God and His majesty and His glory, it has an amazing way of putting our own problems into perspective. It has an amazing way of helping us realize that nothing we are going through is too big for God. We can get so overwhelmed with our own problems, right? Because we get stuck in this this me world, right? And we forget there's an awesome, amazing God out there. He's like, I know, I know. I knew you were going to go through this. And I'm here for you. And I'm bigger than your problem. And I will stand with you. I will walk through the waters with you. I will walk through the fire with you. But focus on me, not your problems. Gives us perspective. And verse 3 and 4 do just that. They give us perspective. Give us perspective. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. I want you to picture for a moment a young David. David is a shepherd. He's a young boy, probably an adolescent boy. Before he was king, before all of that, he's just a simple shepherd out in the fields tending the flock. 
And I want you to imagine the scene. It's a, it's a quiet, peaceful night. He's lying on his back on a grassy knoll, gazing up into a clear, starry sky. The moon is out, shining bright. Have you, by the way, did you see the moon recently over the past few days? It's just been incredible. Amazing. But he's looking out at the moon. And what's David doing as he, as he looks into the night sky? He's doing one of his favorite things. He's meditating on the Lord. And he's looking at, up at the sky and the vastness of the universe, the billions of stars. And he's thinking, who are we that you would be mindful of us? That you would even think about us or consider us worthy of your attention. Who are we that, that you would be concerned with us at all? You know, um, some of the shows I love to watch are sort of shows about the universe, you know, the cosmos and all this kind of thing. And they're just amazing because to me, again, they really just displays the glory of God. And they're just fascinating to watch. And um, recently I've been watching this documentary on Netflix called The, The Edge of All We Know. I actually mentioned this about a month or two ago. But the basic premise of the show is, it's not a show, it's a documentary is that there's a group of scientists they are trying to understand the nature of black holes. And they're doing this, one of the ways they're doing this is by studying a supergiant elliptical galaxy which is named M87. I know, I know, you, you're all saying, oh yeah, that old chestnut. Yeah. <clears throat> M87. And uh, at the core of the galaxy of M87 is a supermassive black hole that is 53.49 million light years from Earth. And there's a little clip in this documentary that I want to show you because they, they, they do a sort of, they show us how far 53.49 million light years from Earth is. And it gives us a sense of just perspective at just how vast a tiny part of the universe is. So take, I'm going to turn the lights off here and just... Take a look at this for a moment, because when I first saw it, it was just like, wow.
Does that not just fill you with awe at how vast the universe is? And that's only a, that in itself is just a tiny part of the universe that God has created. And we are a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the universe that God has created. No wonder David was asking, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for. When you think of how just insanely large God's creation is, he's focused on us. And verses 5 to 8 give us a picture of, of God's design and plan and purpose for humanity. It's actually his original plan for our flourishing. This psalm, what it does is it gives us an image of the world and mankind as God originally created us to be. Verse 5, you have made them a, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them, that's us. A little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Now, our translation says that we were made a little lower than the angels. Other translations say we were made a little lower than the uh, heavenly beings. And then some other translations say we were made a little lower than God. So again, which is it? Well, it can be all of those. But again, if we go back to the Hebrew, the word that's used there is this word Elohim. Elohim. Remember I mentioned earlier that Elohim is one of the words used in the Old Testament for God. And so I think the correct interpretation is, is, is that you made them, that's us, a little lower than God. And this actually also ties in very well with the fact that these verses, 5 to 8, in this psalm, are clearly a meditation on Genesis chapter 1. It's right out of Genesis 1. David's riffing off Genesis 1, so to speak, and the creation account we find there. So let's turn to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis 1, chapter 26 to, sorry, chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. It's page 1 in your Bible, in your pew Bible. So it's really easy to find, right at the beginning of your Bible. And we're going to look right at the first chapter there. Verses 26 to 28. Goodness gracious, I do need those reading glasses. Here's what it says, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So do you see see the connection there? It's almost word for word the same thing that David is writing in this psalm here. And so we're created in God's image that's not insignificant because nothing else in all creation is created in God's image except you and I. Except human beings. That's what makes us a little lower than God. We're not God because we were created by God. But we are called to be like God and to reflect God 
through being created in his image. It's kind of like, you ever see a little kid and they're, they're spitting image of one of their parents? You know, it's like a little mini-me. And they're not their parent, right? But they reflect their parent in how they look and often in how they act. They've learned their mannerisms and all that kind of stuff from their parent. Well, it's the same deal with us. We're creating the image of God. We were created to reflect God. But we're made a little lower than God and we're crowned with glory and honor. Well, what does that glory and honor look like? Again, verses 6 to 8. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. So these verses, like the ones that we just read in Genesis, they make something very, very clear. You, me, this world, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the entire universe was created it was created it did not just happen it did not emerge out of nothing and nobody it was created by God and actually one of the things this psalm is is it's a corrective it's a pushback a direct refutation actually against the false and deceptive narrative that has been spread and is widely accepted throughout our culture And it's this, the lie that the world, that you and I and the universe is random, is accidental and without purpose. That's a lie. It's a lie we've been fed and to believe. But it is not true. And you know, if you you think about this in our context today, and the, the plethora of beliefs that people will hold simultaneously about things... It's staggering to me at just how many people buy into that false narrative. But then in the same breath, we'll talk about the importance of human rights and social justice and equality and equity and all these various things that we talk about today. But there's no grounds or justification for any of that if you believe we're the product of mindless evolution. What's your ground for saying that you have worth, that we should all be treated equal if you believe, you know what, we're just here by chance. You made it through natural selection. You happened to survive. Then our worth is arbitrary. It's decided by the culture we live in. And culture changes all the time. There's no grounds for it. You cannot say on one hand, yeah, I believe we're the product of mindless evolution, but I'm all for human rights and justice and equality. It doesn't work. It's incoherent. And yet... Our education systems will teach both Darwinian evolution and the importance of social justice and equality and human rights all in the same curriculum. While nobody seems to notice the inherent cognitive dissonance and contradiction between the two. Is it any wonder that we have a generation of confused kids? There's no critical thinking. There's no examination of our beliefs. Is what I believe coherent with this other belief I have or do they contradict one another these are the kinds of things we need to be examining and here's the wonderful thing about the Christian faith about the biblical narrative it gives us from start to finish a clear coherent view of life it explains our origins our purpose our meaning and it explains what will be it's all there and it's all true it's the wonderful thing about our faith 
It makes sense. Now this psalm, and frankly, like I said, the whole biblical narrative makes it abundantly clear that we are deliberately and purposefully created by a God who loves us. And he's created us with meaning and intentionate and infinite worth as his image bearers. That's why we should have human rights. These verses, though, they also make clear that we are different from the rest of God's creation. We're different. We're not just another species of animal in the food chain that happens to be the more evolved than our fellow apes and beasts of the earth. That's not what Scripture tells us, is it? We were actually created to have authority and dominion over this earth. For everything to be under our feet, the psalm says. For all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. God's plan was that we should be the benevolent rulers of this world. That we should be the holy and righteous stewards of his creation. That was the plan. Enter our disobedience. Enter sin. And because of that, the authority and dominion that the Lord gave us has been twisted. That we were supposed to have over this world. And sadly, we often do abuse this world, don't we? And you know, this is, this is where the environmentalists and the climate activists have got it right. We do often abuse the creation God has given us, be it through bad stewardship of our natural resources or unnecessary cruelty to animals in the name of profit and money. And you know what? It's good to raise these issues and for us to strive to be better and nobler and more responsible with the world that God has given us. We should all be striving to do that because we are stewards of his creation. But here's where many environmentalists and climate activists have got it wrong. They've begun to worship the creation rather than the creator. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. It's going to be, it's page 911 in your Bible. This is an emergency, guys. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to start reading at verse 21. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. And that's page 911 in your pew Bibles. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles therefore God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another listen here they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised amen so you see see what happens there When we push God out of the mix and we don't know God and we don't understand or have a grid for God's design for the world and our place in it as humans, then what naturally tends to happen is that we make our own gods and we start to worship nature. 
This is what they do in things like Wicca and paganism. They worship nature. And nature becomes your main purpose for living. That's what we call idolatry, by the way. But people worship creation over the creator. And then often this will be connected to a view that humans aren't really special, that we're not more intrinsically important than any other species on the planet. We just happen to be more evolved. And in fact, did you know that to presume we as humans are more important than other animals is a form of bigotry? You've been bigoted when you believe that, right? You know, we're all familiar with concepts like uh, racism and sexism and, and lots of other isms, right? But did you know there's such a thing called speciesism? Yeah, speciesism. It's the assumption of human superiority over other species. I, I know it sounds like I'm making it up. It, this is serious. There's a lot of people really serious about this. It's not a joke. It's a real thing. And when you think about it, it's really, I think, part of a natural outworking of our obsession right now of continuing looking for new forms of oppression. There was a, a recent article published in the Oxford Journal of Legal Studies, right? This is the legal journal published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the Faculty of Law at Oxford University. This is a serious, well-respected publication in the, world, the law world. <clears throat> and they had an article in there written by two academics from Sheffield University in the UK. And the, the paper was entitled, Should We Protect Animals from Hate Speech? It's not satire. This is not the Babylon Bee. This is a serious PhD level paper. And I just want to read for you a little bit of the abstract. The abstract is a sort of a, a very quick summation of what the, the paper is going to be about. They wrote, quote, Laws against hate speech protect members of certain human groups. However, they do not offer protection to non-human animals. Using racist hate speech as our primary example, we explore the discrepancy between the legal response to hate speech targeting human groups and what might be called anti-animal or speciest hate speech. They finish the abstract by saying there is no in-principle reason to support the censure of racist hate speech, but not the censure of speciest hate speech. This is a serious paper. It's making the point that you can have hate speech against gerbils. The animal rights organization, PETA, <clears throat> actually posted a tweet back in 2018 with the headline, Stop Using Anti-Animal Language. And again, a serious post. This, I promise you this is not satire. And they suggested that instead of using phrases like, be the guinea pig, we should say, be the test tube. That instead of saying, take the bull by the horns, say, take the flower by the thorns. What about the flowers? Right? I think my favorite, though, was instead of saying, bring home the bacon, we should say, bring home the bagels. Because the pig community may be offended. I know this sounds like satire, but it's not. It's deadly serious. Why do I bring all that up, right? Well, because this is a, an example of what happens 
when we lose sight of the fact that we are precious in God's eyes, that we are unique, we're not like the rest of the creatures of the earth. We alone are created in his image and we alone have a special calling and purpose. And you know, we're so precious and unique in God's eyes that he gave us Jesus. He gave us his one and only son so that to do what we could not. And here's where the psalm points back to Jesus. Jesus, through becoming one of us, God in the flesh, through becoming human, Jesus became the realization of God's original plan for human beings. Jesus led that perfect life of obedience and holiness to God that we were originally called to live and failed at. And Jesus did it so that we could be redeemed and reconciled to God. Let's turn to our Bibles one last time. I want you to go to Hebrews, page 968 in your pew Bibles. And we're looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. And you'll find here that the writer of Hebrews quotes a chunk of Psalm 8. But he's applying it to Jesus. All right, 968 in the pew Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2. Beginning at verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, that's Jesus by the way, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So you see how Jesus became, was made a little lower than God and was, became that perfect human being that we could not be. He was perfectly obedient to God obedient even to death on a cross and he became the second Adam that the first Adam was meant to be. Do you know that that there would have been no need for Jesus to come in the flesh and for him to die on the cross for us if Adam and Eve had lived out their calling and purpose obedient to God? They've never had to be. We'd be living in a completely different world right now if that had been the case. There'd be no more de- there wouldn't be any death, there wouldn't be disease or pain or injustice. But here's the wonderful thing. It's because of Jesus and what he has done, there is coming a day when creation will be renewed, where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, where the old order of things will have passed away and where we will be able to be truly human. To be the human beings God created us to be without sin and with authority and dominion over his good creation. We were always meant to work hand in hand with God. It was supposed to be that perfect partnership, that relationship. So as we wrap up here, there's a few points that we can take away from this psalm. Firstly, God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And his glory and majesty are everywhere. 
Secondly, because of that, that should cause and inspire us to praise God. It's one of the ways God reveals himself. And praise is one of the most powerful tools and defenses we have against the enemy and against the trials and difficulties we face in life. And then thirdly, we are all precious and unique to God among all his creation. We alone have been created in his image to have authority and dominion over his creation. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? He sent Jesus for us. That's how mindful God is of us. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray.